This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, You'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 511, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast 
with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Kevin Conley. Kevin is a wildland firefighter, author, and has also completed multiple extreme endurance events, including riding his bicycle from San Francisco to Florida. So we discuss a host of topics from his rocky road into the fire service, wildland near misses, how his endurance events helped his own mental health, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Kevin Conley. Enjoy. Well, Kevin, I want to start by saying thank you so much, firstly, for sending me a copy of your book late last year, and secondly, for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Yeah, you're very welcome. It's a, a pleasure to finally see you, and uh, it's an honor to be on your podcast. You've had some incredible people on your podcast, so it's really cool to be a, a part of that story and help to uh, help the world sharing sharing stories of hope and resilience and strength and uh, helping others and, and giving back to the world and letting people know uh, it's all right to not be all right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you have a very, very powerful story. So I'm looking forward to kind of unfolding it as we go on. So for people listening, where are we finding you on planet Earth today? Uh, currently, I'm back in Virginia. Uh, for the last year, I lived in Utah focusing on writing my book. I kind of did like just a lonely 11 months spending time focused on writing my book, kind of like a ninja, just hiding out, writing, writing, writing. Um, and now I'm back in Virginia helping my parents. Uh, my parents are going through some health stuff. So just trying to help them um, for a few months, you know, focused on on family. Family so important. So trying to help them. And then I'll be moving back west uh, in probably a month or two. Brilliant. Well, speaking of your parents, I would love to start at the very beginning of your timeline. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah, I was born in Alexandria, Virginia. In 1987, <laughs> I don't remember that. Um, so I got my mom and dad are still together after uh, they've been together for like 40 something years. And uh, I have one younger brother. He's seven and a half younger, seven and a half years younger than me. His name's John. Um, my dad is in the um, financial advising and life insurance business. He owns his own company called Freedom Brokerage Services, and uh, he's fixing to retire uh, any day now. So that's exciting. And my mom was a flight attendant for American Airlines, and she retired a couple of years ago. That was her career uh, since college, and she loved doing that. And she picked up being a flight attendant after her father, my grandfather, who I called Poppy. He was a World War II pilot, and then he was a pilot in the Korean War and then a pilot for Delta uh, for the rest of his life. So that's why she wanted to join the airline services. 
Amazing. Well, let's start there then. So, did you, a lot of us, we lost our grandparents when we were still young ourselves. Did he live long enough for you to be able to get any perspective of maybe some of the things he carried from his own conflicts? Um, My grandfather was a super witty, smart, happy, fun-loving grandfather. Um, I think I only heard him talk about the war, gosh, maybe once. I feel like that and this is just my opinion with the people that I've met from that generation, you know, some call it the greatest generation and they were such strong people, but it seems like back then they were trained to whatever they went through in war to just keep it, keep it at war. And no, he never discussed it with me. He just, he did share a, a map of the Korean war. It was really cool. It was on like an old piece of canvas, like a big piece of canvas paper where he drew his flat, he like made the map and then he did little dots for his flight routes that he flew. Um, he never spoke of World War II that I can remember. Um, yeah, but it, when he died, it was, um, it hit me really hard, but I saw one of the greatest marks of respect and I'll never forget it. There was um, a guy that was in his flight. I don't know exactly what you call it in the Air Force, but like his flight squadron. And he hadn't seen this man since World War II. And somehow this gentleman, you know, they were both near 90 at the time. I think my grandmother, grandfather was 87 when he died. And I think this guy was 90. And he heard that my grandfather died, hadn't seen him since the war. So since like 1949 or 50 or something. And heard that he passed away. And this 90-year-old man drove all the way down from Massachusetts to Pennsylvania to pay his respects. And it was something I never, it was incredible, that honor. And it was just so cool watching, talking to this gentleman. And he came all the way just to respect my grandfather. And and the 21 gun salute just uh, breaks your heart. Everyone got emotional, and you know, when they put the flag over the casket, but it was great to see the way that they honored each other. Well, it'd be interesting. I mean, if we could have, you know, gone back in time and asked him, I've, I've had, literally World War II veterans on here. I just had a, a police officer who has written a book called The Rifle and he's interviewed, I think, hundreds of World War II veterans, if I'm not mistaken. And when he actually gains the trust, he was a Marine himself as well. So he was able to get them to open the door and a lot of them didn't do well when they came back. A lot of that was kind of behind closed doors. But at least there was an acknowledgement of the sacrifice and service in the World War II generation. The Korean War is referred to as the Forgotten Conflict, the Forgotten War. I would be interested to see what his perception was of his homecoming from World War II versus his homecoming from Korea. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, I, I couldn't tell you. No, he never talked about it, and he was always a happy, happy old man. Um, he was great to me. He taught me fishing and, and some great, great lessons in life, you know, honesty and not to steal and be nice to people and, and help out less fortunate people. And No, he was a happy, happy grandfather. I don't think he had any mental issues. Uh, I don't know what he saw because um, he never talked about it. But in World War II, there was a time where he, he flew a, a fighter plane. So I'm sure that he shot someone, something. Yeah, absolutely. Well, stay on the aviation theme for a second. One of my fire captains that, that I adore, um, his wife has been with, uh, is it American? No, I think it is Delta, actually. But she's been, I think, since the 70s. So, long, long, long career. 
And I was asking her, you know, from what we understand back in the, you know, the 60s, 70s, it was a revered profession. It was, you know, admired. And then obviously we've seen this deconstruction and this kind of cheap airline movement that, that we've got now. Um, have you asked her about her perception of this kind of the, you know, what she's seen with her own eyes in that profession specifically? My Like my mom being a flight attendant? Yes. Oh, she loved every minute of it. Every minute of it. No, she... The, the cool thing is my mom is extremely humble. Um, she could like save a child from a burning building and we wouldn't know for like 30 years. But I remember years ago, I was helping my mom clean something upstairs in, in a room. This might've been like eight or 10 years ago. And I opened one of the drawers to a, like a dresser. And when I opened it up, the dresser was full of letters. And I opened one of them up. My mom had received well over a hundred letters of recognition from passengers that flew on her planes that wanted to, they sent a letter to American airlines. Some of these were from like the nineties, you know, before social media and all that, they sent a letter to American airlines about her and then they would forward it to her. And she never told my dad or me or my brother until 20 years later, we found this drawer full of letters. So she's very humble. Um, but she loved being a flight attendant. She loved it. Um, she loved being, up in the sky and um, it was a great career too because she got to spend a lot of time at home raising uh, my brother and I. Beautiful. That's good to hear. It really is because I mean, there's there's a, a real diverse spectrum of, of flights out there now. I just rode, uh, flew Frontier. It was fantastic. It got me from A to B safely. I got no complaints, but having flown since, um, God, since I was a kid, I've seen that, you know, it used to be this wow factor. I think especially COVID, COVID really destroyed that flying experience for a lot of people. So it's nice to see it slowly kind of unwrapping again now. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So the funny, the real funny thing is I am petrified of flying. I hate flying. I don't, I don't get on a plane unless there's a funeral or a beautiful woman on the other side of that plane. Yeah, I don't like to fly. Well, didn't you fly a lot when you were wearing the uniform, though? Well, like flying helicopters. See, I don't mind helicopters that much because we fly. it flies low. And my only comfort with flying is low, when you're low. But my discomfort with flying, my fear, is when you're like 20,000 feet up and you have no control. And if I can choose not to put myself in a situation where I lose control, then... I don't want to be there, you know. We probably don't uh, want to look at the news then because I think we lost four people in Florida in a helicopter crash and four people in Australia just yesterday. So oh, gee, I wouldn't look. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, really gonna help. Watch, I really watch the news. But um, no, I enjoyed flying on helicopters. Well, there's also something when you have like a, a purpose when you're flying to a fire. Um, you know, I'm not sitting there scared of the helicopter ride. I'm focused on the mission, you know, what we got to do and the land we're saving, the neighborhood we're saving, whatever it may be. And I think when you have a mission, just about for anything in life, when you're on a mission, you, you're so focused that a lot of fear, a lot of things in the back of your mind kind of get pushed further back in your mind and you're more focused on the task at hand. Absolutely. Yeah, I wrote one of the chapters in my book, I wrote about a, one of many fires, but in the West Coast, we were on the tiller trucks and, you know, you'd find yourself three or four stories up having climbed a ladder at two in the morning, three in the morning, just, you know, five minutes after waking up. And after you're like, oh, <laughs> that was actually a little bit, you know, the pucker factor. But as you said, when you're in that flow state at the moment, you're not thinking about it. 
Right. No, it's wild how that happens. It's sort of like the fight or flit, uh, fight or flight. And I think, you know, us as firefighters, there's no flight that doesn't kick in because it's not an option. You can't just be like, nope, not going to that place. You know, it's like we're going and your mind kind of locks into that. And then afterwards, when you debrief or whatever, and you think about it, you're like, damn, that was pretty like we almost died. But in the moment, you're just fighting your ass off to get the job done. Absolutely. Well, you ended up in a very, very physical um, profession, I would argue more physical than the municipal firefighter that I was. When you were in the school age, what sports and or training were you doing back then? Um, all through um, elementary and middle school and high school, I uh, played baseball and basketball, um, ran a little bit of track. I loved running. Ever since I was a little boy, I loved to run. Um when I was like in, in elementary school, I'd run laps around and I'd dedicate them to different girls. Like right when you started getting a crush on a girl when you were like nine years old, I'd say these next 10 laps are for Annie. And for some reason, I think a girl would like me if I ran like 20 laps for, her. you know, and sometimes I'd run like five miles and all the other kids were sitting down and I just keep running. I'd say, this is for you, Annie, every time I ran around. Uh, but I always loved running. Um, and I played basketball through uh, high school and, and baseball through high school. Um, I love sports. And then I sort of went the wrong direction later in high school, just started smoking pot and, and not caring about school and, and just messing around. And that got me in a lot of trouble in high school and, and, and stopped playing sports. So when you were in that high school age, maybe before you kind of got knocked off the rails a little bit, what were you dreaming of becoming profession-wise? Um, gosh, I, you know, I think I was just one of those happy kids that was like, I'm going to be in the NBA one day. That's the only, only thing that I can remember being a dream was being like a professional baseball or basketball player. However, there's a, a funny picture, um, of me in a fireman's, uh, uniform when I was probably seven years old. And my dad said, I talked about that for a long time. I don't really remember that as a kid. He said, you wanted to be a fireman so bad when you were a little kid. And it's a cool little picture when I look back at it. Um, long story short, we were driving down to a beach house down in the Outer Banks in North Carolina. And uh, my dad's car broke down. And the near we we're kind of in the middle of nowhere, but there was a fire station uh, nearby. And we walked to the fire station and uh, they called us some help, AAA or whoever it was. We had to get the car towed. And it took hours and the, all the firemen were so cool. And they let us play in the trucks and they gave us the little plastic um, helmets and uh, turned on the hoses. And we got to check out the fire trucks, which is so cool when, when you're a little kid. And my brother is probably two years old and his eyes are just wide open and he's running around in a diaper around the fire station. And they were such nice, nice people to do that for us. Um, and then they let me put on their, um, their turnout gear. So that's what the picture is me and the, I got the big helmet on and it looks goofy. It looks so cool on a little kid, uh, but it's a cool picture because, you know, th you know, 25 years later, I became a firefighter. It's crazy. Well, it also underlines how important is us, f excuse me, how important it is for us to be that professional, be that mentor. And I get it. It is hard when you've had the shit kicked out of you for, you know, day after day after day on shift. And, you know, you just want to sit down and relax. But whether it's a volunteer from another state or whether it's a make a wish child or just simply someone dropping in, um, you know, who knows the impact you might have on that child. 
Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, it's funny um, because I have so much respect for structure firefighters, and I've spoken. I got friends that are uh, city firefighters, and spoken to so many of them, and they always think that I'm crazy for fighting fire. You know, being on a hotshot crew, and I think they're crazy going into a burning building. You know, and they think we're crazy for going into the burning woods. And it's interesting. Of course, there's a common respect for what we do, but see, I think your job's much harder. Um, See, we don't deal deal with people. Very rarely do we deal with people. You know, we might be, you know, saving homes in in, in a community, but, you know, it's been evacuated. No one's there. Um, We're sort of silent ninjas doing our job. And you guys, you know, go into a burning building, save people, risk your life. You know, my friend uh, is a a structure, heavy rescue up in Ohio. And some of his stories about falling through a basement and it's petrifying being in you can't see and and I know you guys have to do a lot of um, emergency medical work too, which just seems very traumatic. Um, and not saying wildland firefighters don't see trauma. Um, we just don't see it as often as as structured firefighters see trauma. See, it's so interesting because so many of the wildland firefighters I've had on here have said exactly the same thing. And my my favorite department, I had some great people in other departments, but my favorite department overall was Anaheim, California. And we were we had wildland, um, oh my goodness, forgetting the term now. But anyway, the edge of our city was then wildland, wildland interface. That was the word I'm looking for. Um, okay, yeah, and yeah. so some of our guys would go out on strike teams and I was on a truck. So we'd stay and protect the city and obviously be there on the front lines if it burnt up to us. But um, each one has a different kind of stressor to it. You guys are, you know, out in the woods for days or weeks or even months at some point. You know, your work day is incredibly long. Your exertion, the duration of work is so much longer than us. Um, But I just watched a sequel to the documentary Burn about the Detroit fire. And they recently shifted to responding to EMS as well. And I forget which um, LT it was, but one of the officers said... I've been on, I think we've been doing EMS for, I think, for, you know, a year, two years now. He said, I've seen more trauma dealing with the EMS calls than I saw in the 20 years of my career up to this point. So each one of us has this different kind of mix and none is, you know, worse or better than the other. It's just a different type of trauma. Right, right. Yeah, no, it's so intense to think because I have a couple of friends that are on ambulances, um, one in the LA area, and it blows my mind on a daily basis what they see um you know obviously that's something that they chose to do and they want to do and they have a passion for helping others but gosh every time i talk to them it's like a a gunshot or someone died and cpr and it's such an intense job i i just have the utmost respect for people that um do ems services incredible respect for them yeah well i'm sure they would say the same about the wildland community (laughs) Well, speaking of trauma, before we progress into your career timeline, one of the common denominators that's come out of interviewing hundreds of people on this show now, and it's something that in the fire service, we don't really identify as a contributing factor to some of the mental health challenges that we have, is what happened before we put the uniform on. It sounds like you adore your mom and dad. When you look back at your childhood were there any elements of your upbringing um, that now with this mental health lens that you have, you would consider maybe kind of compromise the foundation a little bit before you entered the fire service? Sure, sure. Um, the most interesting part of, of that is that I did it all to myself. 
Um, so I was raised beautifully in a, a good Christian family and uh, great roots, great foundation, and very charitable parents. So all the the pain that I went through, I put myself through it. My dad likes to call it uh, the two-by-four method, um, which means I never went the easy way. I had to get you know hit in the head with a two-by-four to kind of wake up. Um, so when I was a teenager, I went to juvenile detention center, um, a few times, maybe, uh, three times for 30 days. And I went to, my parents sent me to wilderness therapy programs as a teenager. Um, and one of those was pretty, uh, corrupt, um, which I think kind of messed me up a little bit the way they, uh, treated the, the kids there. Um, but I never held on to that for too long. And then in my early twenties, I got in, into some issues, um, and in and out of jail, um, just drinking and, and selling pot, um, nothing major, and just kind of was throwing my life away down a, a bad path. But I, I, I did it all to myself. There wasn't something that happened. Um, I have a great family, very supportive. Um, and I just went on the wrong path for a long time. And um, it was in my early 20s. I was like, what, what the fuck am I doing with my life? I got to make a change. I got to, you know, find a new better path and, and stick to something. Um, so I started to really change my life um, in 2012. So when I was 23 was when I decided to hike the Appalachian Trail and and really try to find myself and, and find my purpose and, and my why and and figure out, you know, who I was and and get out of that rut of, of drinking and smoking and just going nowhere in life. And that, you know, took me till I was 23. But, you know, some people, they don't learn that for their 30s or 40s. Who knows? And it's not about when it happens. It's just about, you know, understanding the, the course that you're on and, and making a change. And it doesn't happen overnight. You know, some people, it's quicker than others. But it's all about the process and, and trusting the process and, and knowing it doesn't happen overnight. Uh, that's what's beautiful about making a change in your life is it takes time and, and seeing yourself, you know, over the years, um, change and, and develop and, and learn and grow. It's so fun to be like, gosh, looking back where I was a year ago to where I am now, it's, it's beautiful, you know? So when you mentioned about that one program being corrupt, I had a horrendous issue with my son and his school and then ultimately a, a mental health facility that he was completely improperly sent to, basically kidnapped. Um, and, you know, I had to do a lot of work alongside so many other people who are already advocating for this to get it changed. And it's changed now. Um, but when we send some of these people to a program that's supposed to help improve it and that um, that power is abused, that's a very, very dangerous thing. So if you want to elaborate, what was wrong with that particular experience that you had? Yes. Um, so it was a very expensive program down in Northern Georgia. Um, it's called Hidden Lake Academy and attached to that boarding school, it's a therapeutic boarding school. They had a wilderness program and most of the people that worked at the wilderness program were, uh, like old army Rangers. And what they told your parents was you're going to be at this happy camping experience. However, what we went through wasn't a happy camping experience. And, um, to give you a couple examples, um, for four days, they took five of us and we weren't allowed to talk to each other. Uh, we weren't given any gear. Um, 
and we had to put one of the guys on a stretcher and carry him. We didn't know why this was happening. Carry him up a mountain all day on a stretcher. And uh, it started raining. And we were out in the rain for four days. They didn't give us sleeping bags or tents. They gave us a big tarp that we'd have to roll roll up in. And then when it was time to eat, they'd give us um, um, MRE, but they'd only give us the main meal. And like the first day, we had 45 seconds to eat it. The second day, we had a minute. Um, and we never knew when we were going to eat. We couldn't talk to each other, and it was freezing. And we almost got hypothermic, so they gave us trash bags. And for like the last day, we just would have to follow a truck down a dirt road, and we would just hike in the rain throughout the night. And, uh, yeah, we did that for five days. It was miserable, and I didn't understand what we were learning from that. Uh, we did a thing called – uh, the staff didn't call it that, this, but the students did. It was, we called it boredom therapy where we walked out to this giant field and we would fill our arms up with firewood and then we would fill a backpack up with rocks and we would separate by 30 feet and we would walk in giant circles around this huge field the entire day. And then when lunch came, we could drop our um, firewood from our arms and we got one lap to eat lunch, and then we had to put the firewood back in our arms. And we couldn't talk or look at each other. And that was the entire day. And so they did things like this that were, they weren't therapeutic for like a 16-year-old kid. Um, they definitely taught you a lesson, like you didn't want to do anything bad um, because you were afraid of that consequence. It just wasn't a productive um, program to grow therapeutically. It was more of a military structure. Everything had like consequences that you didn't want to do, but you're like a rebellious teenager. So we always pushed the limit. And then, you know, in, in a weird way, I liked it. It made me tougher. That's for sure. Um, some of the, some of the kids have broken down way too much because um, everyone has different thresholds and not all kids are, you know, I like tough things. I appreciate that. You know, I don't mind if someone yells at me and tells me, get the fuck up and do this. You know, I kind of, that like feeds me where other people, it can really break them down and, and torment them. Well, it reminds me of um, one of the Arizona sheriffs was kind of revered, like, oh, he's such a great, you know, law man or whatever. And he would have uh, addicts out in the Arizona sun in chain gangs breaking rocks like hard work is going to break your addiction as opposed to let's get to the root of why this person ever turned to drugs in the first place. You know, so punishing an addict, I don't think is going to work. And the same with you. If you go to the military, you know, you understand the why of why you're going to be broken down because you're going to be built back up again. But uh, you're not the first person who's told me about so-called, you know, mental health or troubled youth programs that basically just abuse people for a week, two weeks with no fucking why behind it whatsoever, other than probably having a tiny dig. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, it was it was constant. Where, uh, yeah, I'd get I got in so much trouble. I ended up getting kicked out of that school um, because it, it was just it was crazy, and I couldn't be there. I didn't want to be there anymore. But then years later, um, I went on to work at a wilderness therapy program in Southern Utah, and totally different type of program. Um, I loved it there. I loved helping the kids. Um, they didn't have behavior modification um, aspects of that program. It was all therapeutic, uh, truly. Um, and I loved working there. It was nothing like my experience. 
Um, it was also, you know, 10 years later and a lot changed. There's a, uh, you know, there's a lot of kids at the program I went to that later overdosed or committed suicide, um, like starking numbers from like the hundred kids that I was there with in the time I was there, I was there for 11 months. It was probably out of that hundred kids, maybe 15 or so of them committed suicide or overdose on drugs, like within years of leaving there. Yeah. Well, I think that underlines the point, you know, if you're not getting to the root issue, which is why I think, you know, a lot of our prisons are just swelling because we, think that if you incarcerate an addict it's going to change them and the reality is it's not and you know, but at the same time i'm not a conspiracy theorist this is just basic economics if we have a profit-based prison system they don't want their, their prisons to be empty so they're going to oppose any proactive mental health measures because it's going to empty out their prisons so you know i, I think it's a complete conflict of interest i agree i agree yeah no it's that's a deep deep conversation um yeah, I mean, if you're not selling, you know, it drives me nuts sometimes. I did a lot of homeless work in Seattle um, years ago. They've gotten a lot better with it now. But, you know, a kid on the street, a 19-year-old kid gets gets arrested and goes to jail for having just a little bit of heroin. And heroin's not, obviously, I don't agree with shooting heroin. Um, I understand when homeless people do it, it's an escape. And to get them out of that moment for a moment. Um, and they get addictions from it, but throwing them in jail doesn't teach them anything that's going to help them get off the street. And now there's a lot of cities. I know Seattle um, isn't really arresting people. They're they're sending a like a caseworker to go talk to them and help them um, with mental health and also to like get a job. Um, so I know there's been progress in some of the bigger cities with that. Um, but yeah, it's sad when you see these these drug addicts get thrown into jail and that's not going to help them. You're, you're just making them rebellious towards the law and, and not respected and it makes them want to use even more when they get out. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to the fireside cause that's very relevant to what we we're just talking about, but I want to make sure I don't miss what happened first. So the Appalachian trail hike was pre fire service. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I hiked the Appalachian Trail when I was 23. Um, and then I started fighting fire when I was 30. Okay. Beautiful. So that is, you know, an infamous trail, extremely hard to navigate. I know that you didn't complete that unscathed. So what made you choose that? Because it seems to be a resounding theme in your own mental health is, is sending yourself into the wilderness, as it were. What made you begin that expedition and then kind of lead me through some of the highlights and lowlights of that journey for you. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, what led me to down that path was um, about two years before I started, um, my grandfather was dying. And um, when he died, I took it. Um, it was like, the, it took me, it, it put me into a, like a deep depression for the first time in my life. And I didn't know how to handle it. It was the first family death um, that I had experienced. And um, I just should have gone up and visited him a lot of times before he died. And I didn't. I was selfish. And I just wanted to do my own thing. And my mom kept telling me to go up and visit him. This could be the last time. And she said that for months. And I finally went. And it was just too late. And I remember going to the nursing home. And he couldn't talk. And he was in diapers. And someone was bathing him and all that. And 
it was just hard to see. And uh, yeah, the last thing he told me, which just like was engraved in my memory was we were leaving and I said, I love you, Poppy. And he didn't say a thing to us in that hour. So we were there and he looked up at me after I said, I love him. And he said, I thought you did. And that was it. And then he died a few days later and that stuck in my mind. And uh, I just felt so guilty for not visiting him and being selfish with uh, my decisions, uh, especially as such a great uh, grandfather to me that was always spending time and with me as, as a kid and, and a young man. And then when he was dying, I was just so selfish and I regretted that so much. Um, and I used to go home and put in old VHS movies and try to bring them back to life watching these and I would drink too much and I was in a dark depression and I got in a lot of trouble and, and just drank two years of my life away. And I was so sick of, sick of dying. You know, I was just dying in a, in my depression and drinking and I was sick of living that way. And, uh, that's when I decided to go hike the Appalachian trail and, and just break free of, of where I was and do something different, uh, to hopefully empower myself and, and change my life. And, the Appalachian Trail. Oh gosh, on the first day, I felt like I was finally like breathing again. I felt so free. And the Appalachian Trail is from Georgia to Maine, 2,180 miles. And uh, it changed and, and saved my life. Yeah, it, it truly changed my life and put me in a better perspective and a, and a better path uh, since then. So what were some of the adversities that you faced during that? Because I know you know, you, there were some injuries and poisons, et cetera. Yeah. Well, goodness. Um, I got bit by a black widow on my butt, um, and that hurt really bad. That swelled up, too. Um, and that feels like you have the flu. If you're like a healthy young adult, I was 23, 24, um, there's nothing really they do. They give you some antibiotics. Um, it hurts real bad, so I think I got a couple of days of Vicodin. Um, then I got Lyme tick disease, which messed me up for a while. I broke my foot, um, twice. I got two stress fractures in my right foot with 500 miles left. Um, and I kept hiking. I took a couple of days off, kept hiking on those. Um, I got a nasty abscess right above my butt where your pack kind of rests and you sweat a lot. I got a nasty abscess that put me in the hospital, um, off the trail for a couple of days. Um, but no, it was beautiful. But yeah, I had a lot of bumps and, and bruises when I got done. So as you've navigated this this incredible journey, you know, you were kind of in crisis before you left. Who were you on the other side? What had changed? Um, I found happiness again. I found peace. I found confidence. I was happy with who I was, what I accomplished. Um I wasn't feeling depressed or, you know, I got rid of a lot of that guilt that I was holding on to. And I, I truly felt reborn after the Appalachian Trail. And uh, I felt like there was a new, like I saw a whole new world, like backpacking for six months and meeting beautiful people on and off the trail. And the saying on the Appalachian Trail on, on long distance trails are the people are the trail. And you meet some of the most beautiful souls when you're out backpacking every day and hiking in the woods and you're seeing these beautiful sunsets and vistas and, you know, you're pounding up these big mountains um, every day. And I just came out the other side like a, a new person. I, I sort of came out the other side like a hippie. Um, and I just love being outside. 
and I found a, a new meaning for life, so to speak. Maybe the first time I really felt like a true, true meaning. Um, you know, when I finished, I, I really felt like a new meaning for life and what I want to do. It was beautiful. So, I know you were still young, you had a few years before you entered the fire service, so kind of bridge that gap for me. What were the highs and lows of your journey pre-Wildland? Yeah, so after the Appalachian Trail, I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail the following summer, um, raised $10,000 for a children's charity in D.C. when I hiked that, fell in love with a beautiful girl. We were uh, together for a couple years. I went on and hiked the John Muir Trail four times which is one of the most scenic trails in the country. Um, I did wilderness therapy for um, about a year and a half, almost two years in Southern Utah, helping uh, struggling youth and young adults. And I absolutely love that job. Um, and then I got into bike touring. I rode my bicycle from Canada to Mexico. Um, I rode my bicycle from San Francisco to San Diego, I think six times now. I almost do that every year. Uh, so, Got, I love backpacking, uh, but well over 10,000 miles backpacking and 10,000 miles bike touring. And uh, I was living up in Seattle uh, before my first fire season and working a construction job with my buddy and just wanted to do something different. And I don't know exactly why I thought of fire. I mean, I love hiking, backpacking. I love nature. Um, so I thought it'd be cool to protect it. So applied for some fire jobs and got a job on a wildland engine in Helena, Montana. And oh boy, I fell in love with that job the first fucking day. Now with the journey in, um, I had a few guests that Brooke Rasco was one. She actually ended up uh, through the kind of corrections, the inmate firefighting system. Um, it wasn't Brenda McDonald, who was on the Prescott, you know, crew that 19 of his brothers were, were killed. He was struggling with addiction prior. So there seems to be, maybe a little bit more element of forgiveness and open-mindedness in some of the wildland fire hiring than there is some of us listening in the the city and county fire with this background that you had some of the arrests were they a barrier to entry or did you find that kind of more accepting community in the the path that you took i had no trouble when i went into so i worked for the state of montana um i had absolutely no trouble and i think that that had to I think they needed people. So I think they overlooked some of that shit. Uh, the next year when I joined the Snake River Hotshots, which is a, a federal job, um, I you know went through the interview process, got the job, uh, started the training, um, but my paperwork didn't go through right away. And two weeks into the training, uh, my boss called me in the office and said, uh, we can't, uh, because of your uh, criminal back background, I hate to say criminal, um, stupid, you know, pot charges 10 years ago, but, uh, they said, we can't hire you. And it wasn't his decision. That's way up in human resources up in Boise. And, uh, well, I, I wanted to fight for my case and let people know who I was and not who I was, you know, 11 years ago. And so I called my boss and I said, Hey, can you tell him I'm driving, uh, from Helena to Boise, you know, three, four hours. And I'd love to sit down with people that made this decision. And he called them and they gave me a chance to, uh, you know, fight for my freedom or whatever we want to call it. And I sat down with some pretty high up people um, in human resources with the federal government that make those decisions who they can and can't hire. And I uh, 
showed them some videos of homeless work I've done and, and told them about myself and how I care about people in the world. And I'm a good person. And, you know, I really want this job and explain, you know, what I did a long time ago wasn't me. That was a young, young boy. And I'm a man now. And, you know, I can't take back those decisions uh, and mistakes, but I learned my lesson and, 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 you know, fought to become a better person. And um, it was the, after I left, they said, well, you know, we'll tell you tomorrow, you know, the results. And I think they really respected that I made the drive out there and fought for my case. Um, and I talked to my hotshot superintendent. He said, uh, Kevin, I think it's incredible what you did. I've never heard of anyone doing that, going to fight for it. Um, and just so you know, I've never, ever heard of them overturning this. So I don't want you to get your hopes up. And then the next morning I got a call. Um, my crew actually went to a fire um, and I was in Boise, um, you know, waiting for this predicament to find out what's going on. And next thing you knew, one of the uh, engine captains called me back in Helena and said, hey, when can you get back here? We're going to put you on an engine until they get back from the hotshot base, uh, back from the fire, back to the you know, the hot shots get back. I said, Oh, so they gave me the job back. He said, Oh yeah. No one told you. I said, no, my first first phone call was, are you, can you get back here tomorrow? So, uh, you know, it it just goes to show, you know, never give up, you know, never give up. And it it was definitely difficult. I had to, you know, jump through some hoops and and ladders, but I got my foot in the door and I, you know, I made it and then uh, never had to talk about it again to work in the feds for the next three years. See, that's so good to hear. I, I've told the story a couple of times. When I first came out of the fire academy, I went down to South Florida, did this this kind of testing where you do a written test, you do a physical test with a CPAT. Um, I think you did like an EM, EMT skills test as well. And then they take all your results and they send them out to all these departments that are hiring. And when we were actually there, City of Miami Beach was given out pre-apps. So, you know, I come from another country and I fill in this this form and yes i tried this as you said a decade ago you know didn't negatively affect me at all was in japan dancing with a lot of people hugged a lot of people that was it had a lot of fun but um you know and was honest because i thought well that surely is a priority it's a long time ago you just telling him this is what i did and the dude literally i'm not shitting i'm not joking he screwed it up and pretty much threw it in my face said you're never you're never working with miami beach i was like oh so i have to lie to be a firefighter okay duly noted and then the rest of the time, I, you know, polygraphs and everything. Oh, no, no, no. I was too busy in church to do anything bad. And you think about this whole concept. The people that they want responding to mass shootings, to cutting children out of cars, to running into, you know, burning wildland. You want that person to have never really kind of stepped out and done anything wrong in their life. It's fucking insane. Now, do you want a child molester on your crew? Of course not. There is a line, but... Right. To act like, you know, if you've ever broken the law or made a mistake when you were younger, that that's, uh, you know, wiping the slate is, is so ridiculous. So it's it's inspiring to me when you do hear these stories in the military and wildland where people are like, I see what you did. I mean, you specifically fought for your case because I hope it gives hope to some people that might be listening that had kind of written themselves off. Yeah, I don't think you should ever, ever write yourself off. And, you know, it took showing my it definitely took showing my path over the you know whatever it was 11 years what i had done um to become a better person and you know my acts of service uh are just living proof that you know who i was um it's it's wild in that situation because you sort of have to brag about all your accomplishments like 
look at me, which I try to be humble. And uh, it's very rare that you're, you know, when you're trying to get a job, you got to just lay everything out. You know, you want to make them adore you and be like, you're a good fucking man. Um, But yeah, that's the key. It's just never give up. Um, And, you know, there's a point, you know, if you don't get the job on a federal level, try with the state. If you don't get one with the state, you know, volunteer for a couple of years. And after they see, you know, how invested you are and how much you care. I mean, that's what they want to see. They want to see someone that's trying to be better, that's 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 fighting to be better. And they care about the job. And when they see that, you know, good chances are that good things happen to good people. Um, and that's what happened, happened in my situation. Absolutely. And there are, you know, all these people are just people. So if you're trying to get in department and there's a brick wall in HR or, you know, training or whatever it is, then try a different department. Because clearly, like I said, you know, that guy should have been like, all right, well, you know, <laughs> these are immediate. You know, before you fill this in, all this stuff is immediate, you know. So if it isn't something that's, I don't know, I guess, I guess there's no way of really saying it without screwing yourself. But I think that whole philosophy in the first responder profession needs to be a little bit more accepting you know there are things that we've done in the past when we were young that as long as you've shown you haven't done it for a long time should be you know forgiven um because those are the very people if you've overcome that adversity that are probably going to be fantastic firefighters and police officers yeah no it's it's sort of uh it's it baffles my mind that just for my certain circumstance and i'm sure there's many other people that have been in this circumstance is i'm being judged for decisions I made when I was 18, 19, 20 that are affecting my life when I'm 30. And I, like, those are two different, completely different people. Like when I'm 18, I don't know what the fucking, what the world's like. I don't, I don't know what, how it is to survive. You know, I'm still living at home. Like, I don't know what what's going on. And it's crazy that those decisions I made right out of high school are affecting me as an adult, when I'm trying to make a career out of something and I'm trying to, you know, be a good person, I I don't think it's fair. Um, I'm not going to, you know, become the governor and try to make a change that way. But I I don't think it's right that I'm judged for things I did when I was a kid. I think that's absurd. Yeah. Well, there's also an irony. I mean, you talked about, you know, the, the one kid that was in jail for heroin. Well, the people that put him away, how many of them are taking oxycodone? maybe more than they were prescribed. You know what I mean? Is there really, you're both trying to fill a void. One was from your doctor. One was probably after the doctor stopped prescribing them anymore. You know what I mean? Same, same exact mental health issue. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Well then your journey through wildland, I know in the book you wrote about some of the, the near misses. So, you know, kind of walk me through the, the, the career fires that you had and some of the, the lows, if you had them whilst you were still in the wildland gear. Yeah. You know, um, I've been so blessed, James, with um, so blessed with having a very strong and positive attitude and just always being able to see see life like just beauty and everything. And so my years fighting uh, wildfire, I was happy. I don't I can't remember any uh, true lows. Um, I had no mental health issues through fighting fire. I love the camaraderie. I loved the goal. I loved the purpose um, that you woke up to every day. And I loved, you know, the achievement, the reward of, of working a hard day and saving land or saving a neighborhood. Um, you know, there was days that were extremely difficult. You know, you're fighting a fire in Nevada and it's 
110 degrees, you're next to a wildfire and, you know, you just went at it for 16 hours and you barely had time to eat. Um, so it's extremely difficult, but oh, that was the best job I've ever had. Um, I loved it. Yeah. I didn't start to have, um, mental health issues till after my last season, um, fighting wildfire. And I think, um, a big reason that, that wildland firefighters do go through, uh, mental health issues is what happens at the end of a fire season for, you know, six months We're um, at the beginning, we're training as a crew, we're finding cohesiveness and we're building together and we're finding leaders in the group and, and, you know, we're dialing in on our skills, you know, uh, sawing and, and fighting fire and, and working with whatever. And we're dialing that all in as, as a crew. And then we go out and on assignments and, you know, on our first fire assignment, you know, we're, we're not the, the best, but then the second one, the cohesiveness comes up and we, we fight together on such a higher production level. And as you watch the crew grow and, and how effective we become through the season, it's incredible. And uh, you're running and gunning, you know, 16 hours, 14, 14, 15, 16 day uh, assignments, and then two days off a month. And you do that for five months. And then all of a sudden the federal government, uh, you know, for temporary employ uh, employees, you're uh, just shut off. You lose your health insurance, you lose all that camaraderie and you lose your purpose. And all of a sudden you're just thrown out, go do whatever you want. Um, and I think that's where you lose. It's just hard to go from like, you're at like a hundred miles a, in our pace and you have so much purpose and you have your boys with you and a brotherhood, a sisterhood. Um, but you have that purpose. You're, you're driven the whole season. And then you're sort of just thrown out to the wild to go do whatever you want. And then it's dark, you know, it's winter and it's dark at five o'clock and uh, you know, the days are short. And I think that really throws a lot of people in a pit. Um, like, especially with alcohol problems, I think people start drinking a lot Um and yeah, just losing that purpose can be very devastating to anyone in life. Uh, and it's rough, you know, six months of the year, you're so driven. And and for the six months in between the seasons, I'm typically highly driven to train. You're training for the next season. I mean, no one's paying you to train for two to four hours a day, but that that's what you do. Um, but my last, after my last season, uh, Fight and Fire, I couldn't, I couldn't really pinpoint what happened, but it was like two days after I got um, term, my contract got terminated and I started to have severe panic attacks and I didn't know what was happening. Um, and those developed very quickly and um, they got worse and worse and worse every day. Um, and yeah, I spun out of mental control. So before we kind of go down that road, you you have, as you said, this this profession where you're only working six months, but you are hiking, cut in line. I mean, extremely demanding physically and mentally. In the the municipal fire service world, one of the biggest challenges is to maintain fitness standards. Now, I'm very, very deliberate in explaining to people why the environment that we work in sets us up for failure the sleep deprivation all these things create this illness this weight gain this hypertension this diabetes cancer etc so we are swimming uphill but 
there's also the ownership element as well. You know, how would you feel if you couldn't make it up to the top of that building where those children were and they burned to death? So it's a really, you know, it's a double-edged sword. You've got to have both those conversations parallel. Now, here we are in the contracted wildland arena, and you just mentioned about training, even though you're not being paid to train. What did they do? What was the philosophy within that community that gave you the drive to to truly understand that not only your life, but other lives depended on you that sometimes gets lost in the city and county departments? Like, why would we train so hard in the off season? How, how are they creating that culture that you continue to train and, you know, train prior to a season as well? Yeah, well, being on a, on a hotshot uh, fire crew, I mean, you're the best of the best. Um, smoke jumpers and, and hotshots are, you know, the most elite wildland uh, firefighting crews. And I mean, there's just no choice but to be in top physical shape. Um, so when you show up on day one, I mean, that first week, they say it's the easiest week, but you do like the hardest test during that week. And I think a lot of it's self-pride. You want to show up and, and show them how much stronger you got. And in order to do that job, the, the stronger I go into the season mentally and physically, the easier those 16-hour days are. Um, and it's sort of no question that fighting fire is a year-long job. Even when I'm terminated, um, I'm running you know, 30 miles a week and hiking up steep hills with 50-pound packs and riding my bike all the time and, and you know, lots of cardio, but also doing CrossFit and, and push-ups, pull-ups, sit-ups, your basic kind of uh, workouts. Um, my inspiration was just to be better for, for myself, but for my crew. Um, cause when you're thinking of the work, like, you know, we're going to be hiking up a steep fucking mountain every, every day. And then if someone does go down, we got to be in good shape to get them off the mountain. Um, which fortunately, um, I never saw any, um, serious injuries in my time in fire. Um, my friend, uh, one of my buddies, uh, hurt his leg one time that wasn't too bad, but had to get flown off and we had to carry him up a mountain, but knowing you're in great physical shape, um, makes everything a lot easier. You know, it's hard to carry anyone up a fucking mountain, but when you've trained for that sort of situation, it makes it a lot easier, um, when you know what your body's capable of. And so you don't see when you, when you get on a hotshot crew and it's day one, I mean, I've never seen a hotshot that's overweight. That's not going to be able to run go on this 10 mile trail run. Everyone shows up prepared. Um, but it's wild because they don't pay you for five months, but you're, you're training like someone's paying you and, uh, hotshot crews are run, uh, pretty, um, I was never in the military, but from friends that were in the military that were on uh, shot crews I was on, um, it's run very militaristic, um, with how we do our training with, with how we, how we roll on assignments and all that. Now, what were the tests that first week? Was it the, the basic pack test or was it a lot more uh, um, challenging than that? So you have your um, your basic pack test, which is uh, it's a joke. Um, anyone can do that. Um, 45 minutes, 45 pounds, three miles around a track. Um, yeah, we do that because that's you have to. That's a standard. Um, and then they have their standard push-up, pull-up, sit-ups. Um, but we always try to excel at those. Um, go well, you know, the standard, I don't know what the push-up standard is, but let's say it's, you know, 20 push-ups in a minute. Like that's not uh, hot shots should be able to do a lot more than that. So, you know, we're trying to do 60, 75, 
you know, 100 push-ups in a row. Um, so going well above that. We do um, tests, um, like our pack test that we do on a hotshot crew. We do your basic one around the track. You know, we do ours around a field. But the one that we do where they're trying to find out where everyone's at is we do it up a mountain. So same idea, 45 minutes, 45-pound pack, three miles, but straight up a mountain um, versus on flat ground. And that sort of tells you where everyone is on the crew. And we'll do a mountain pack test, um, probably two of those in the first week. Um, And then we'll start doing gear ones where we're hiking up. And a lot of trail running. um, And I I love how they, they, they mentally get you on some of the trail runs where um, we'll park the buggies down, you know, by a, a mountain and we'll go for the trail run. We do a lot, we did a lot of trail running on snake river. And so a lot of hotshot crews are different. Some crews are trail running crews. Some, some people really like CrossFit. Some tr- uh, crews are big into hiking. So all the trainings are, are very different on crews. And that's something important to ask with how you have to learn how to train. Um, but we did a lot of trail running and I'll never forget, like we'll be uh, to go up the trails, run up a mountain and we come back and you can see the buggies. They're right in front of you. And we run and we think it's over. You know, we just did eight miles. And then the squad leader runs right past the buggies and we keep <laughs> going. And I can't tell you how many times that happened where you're like, Oh, we made it. You, you're so, and then when your body starts to think you're done and then he keeps running past the buggies. Um, but that's just sort of the mindset um, with being a, a firefighter is, you never know when it's over. Um, you know, there's so many times I've been shaken out of my sleeping bag, you know, at midnight, 2 a.m. And we're right back to the line. And and that's, you know, you have to prepare for those moments as, as well as you can in the, you know, preseason, so, so to speak. Well, it was really eye-opening when I started t- speaking to all these different members of Special Operations, Special Forces um, from, you know, multiple nations. And it was the same exact thing they would say. We hold police and fire to the same standards as ourselves. And you think about it, which firefighter and or paramedic, you know, firefighter paramedic is not special ops, should not be held at the highest standard. If they were responding to your child, do you want them to be the fittest, the strongest, you know, the best trained, best equipped version of themselves? I mean, it's not a competition, but I always held myself at the highest level. I wasn't on the special ops team. I took special ops classes because I wanted to be valuable on the fire ground. But for me, the special ops team didn't run as many calls, so I didn't want to be in the slow station. But I'm not saying I'm a, I'm a physical phenom. I'm not saying I'm the best paramedic. None of those things. But I was at least the best version of myself. And what really the, the concept I struggle with is, well, just put your gear on the rig and, you know, wait out your 24 hours and go home. The, you know, set the bar at the, at, at the floor. That's all well and good until the day that you can't do your job. And then this family just lost their loved ones and it was your fault. And it's so maddening to me that that isn't one of the biggest conversations in the fire service. But usually, especially in the union arena, it's normally about money. It's overtime and pay and all this stuff. And it's not about sleep and rest and recovery and fitness, which it should be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all my time on uh, in fire was heavily focused on on fitness. you know, I'd have my uh, assistant superintendent call me in the off season. Hey, go do this test and, and let me know where you're at. And then he might call me a month later. You know, he might tell me, hey, I'm going to call you in a month and I, I want those numbers to improve. 
And so then I'm inspired. I'm extra motivated. You know, I'm trying to make myself better, but I also, there's, there's a, a great deal of pride in yourself, but when you're a part of a crew, you don't want to let your crew down. I don't want to be that weak link, you know, and it's not about being the middle link or the second to lowest link. I want to be one of the strongest links. Um, someone's always going to be the weakest. Um, you can bet your ass. It's not going to be me. Um, and I just think it's so fun, but yeah, on being on a hotshot crew, everyone's extremely motivated and in great fitness. And that's one of the parts I loved about uh, working on a shot crew is I knew, you know, year round, I'm going to be in great shape. Uh, what kills you on, on fighting fire is you go into the season really strong. You train really hard for the first three weeks um, with the crew, you know, building that cohesiveness. And then, you know, your first two or three fires, you guys are slamming line and you're, you're getting after it. It's, you know, it's, it's wild, like professional athletes, the way we're out there. And then uh, midway through the season, you start to decline because your body just gets so fatigued and so beat up. Um, you just can't live at that high rate um, for that long. And, you know, you start to get skinny and lose weight and you, your, your muscles in certain areas are super defined, you know, your legs, cause you're hiking with weight up mountains all the time. And the way you swing or carry a chainsaw, you're keeping those muscles. But most of the training, I mean, I get done with fire season. I can't go for a 14 mile trail run. It's like starting from scratch at the end of every season. So, Ben Strom was on the show. I know he wrote the Ford for your book as well. One of the mm -hmm. things I remember him talking about, apart from him being an athletic phenom as well, um, was the challenge you have in the wildland community as far as staffing, which then in turn um, exasperates the, the lack of rest and recovery that you guys have. Because when you hear 16-hour days for weeks and weeks and weeks with two days off a month, that doesn't sound to me like that would, you know be it beneficial for physical or mental health you've got to have that rest and recovery what was your exposure to the the short staffing element if any at all during your career um I, you know i haven't noticed i couldn't speak too much about short staffing um ben is a hell of a fucking guy um but he's a hotshot superintendent so he sees so much more than than i would see um our crew was was fully staffed but i mean the reason that i got a hot shot job um there had to be low staffing because my first season uh i was on an engine crew uh, i saw a hot shot crew on a fire and i was like i want to fucking do that and applied but i was like oh, there's no chance i'm going to get it my second season just being on a, a state engine and they called me a week before fire season someone dropped out and they needed to fill fill a role and I had not been training to be on a hotshot crew. And uh, they said, how quick can you be there? I said, I'll be there in a couple of days. You know, I was coming down from California. I'll be there in two days. Um, so the staffing, they had a staffing problem. They needed, you know, another person on the crew. So that's how I got the job. Um, and I think there that happens every year where they, you know, desperately need um, one or two people based on the location. And sometimes they're picking from the bottom of the barrel. And so people will get opportunities that um, possibly weren't earned, but um, through the season, they can earn that. You know, we say the hotshot title, you know, it's never given, always earned. Um, and you're not a hotshot till the end of the season, you know, your rookie season. And so it's all up to how you go into the season and how you fight fire. And a lot of it's just your, your mental attitude and fortitude. 
with how you go through things because shit's going to be hard and don't complain about about it everyone's feet hurt everyone's backs hurt you know everyone's choking on smoke this shit it's rough um it's all about how you get through and and help others and and do your fucking job and do it good now you mentioned crossfit as well just before we kind of transition forward um I found CrossFit while I was actually at Anaheim Fire. So I got to compare pre and post. And I was always an athlete, always worked out. But the addition of the specific training philosophy, I saw it pay off, you know, a year, two years into my career. What was your observation of that type of training on top of all the hiking and rocking that you were doing? Yeah, I love CrossFit training. Um, I had never done CrossFit training until my first season on Snake River. And um, what I really love about CrossFit, where you're working out so many um, different muscles, but the CrossFit that we focused on were um, ap- uh, applicable, applicable to what we were doing, um, working out muscles that would um, re- reciprocate. Is that the word I'm looking for? Like when you were using your tool, when you were swinging into the ground or running a chainsaw, we're working on those muscles. Um, but I loved how you'd keep your heart rate up for extended periods at times, you know, you do like a 10 minute interval training and then we'd run a, run a couple laps around the field. Um, but you're just going at it really hard. So your heart, your heart rates up, you're getting after it. And then you got like a one minute break and then you're doing a, I like the circuit training. Um, so I fell in love with CrossFit. Um, my first season, I think it's great training, um, for fire jobs. Now, one more perspective before we kind of get to your transition out, which I know, as you said, is where you kind of hit the wall again. Again, Ben and um, Jason and some of the other people I had on from the Wildland community, they've all really shared the same observation that these fires are getting worse and worse. They're getting bigger and bigger. We're getting, you know, people being allowed to build in areas that they probably shouldn't have ever been in the first place. You you had these three years under your belt. Talk to me about any kind of takeaways um from a firefighter's perspective when it comes to how do we make these safer for the residents and the firefighters themselves right right well like being a firefighter and seeing so many big fires across the west sometimes it seems like the whole freaking country is going to burn down um it's hard to see how it can't but yeah people uh putting cabins all over california when california is always in a drought um and building cabins in these mountainous terrain, it, it's just like a ticking time bomb because um, a lot of these forests haven't burned in a long time. Um, and fires have fire regimes where, you know, this, you know, 100,000 acres should burn every 10, 20 years. And maybe this plot of land should burn every 40 years. And and a lot of that's from suppression. when We suppress uh, natural wildfire. Um, because we are saving homes or we're saving a national park, whatever it may be, um, the the fuels on the ground grow when they were supposed to burn. And that's a, a huge reason why you're seeing bigger, um, bigger fires um, is suppression, which leaves so much fuel on the ground. Now, did you also witness some of the opposition that some of these other uh, men and women have talked about as far as prescribed burns that would have made it safer for everyone? Oh, I think prescribed fire is that's exactly what we need to be doing and doing a lot more of. I think that's where a lack of funding, a lack of crews comes in. Um, like for seasonal employees, we're working from April or May to October, November. And if there's not funding to get resources in to do a big burn, uh, prescribed fire to protect land that 
is going to burn, but we can do it the safe way, you know, or, you know, in spring or in the fall, you know, knowing snow's coming. Um, and then sometimes to get prescribed burn permits, it takes some of these guys four or five years to get them. So, so by the time that's happened, there might've already been a fire that just destroyed, you know, a ton of land and then burned down a, a few communities um, because we had to wait five years for a, a permit um, just to do that. And I understand that there's a lot of planning that goes involved in that. Um, but people are smart that are trying to plan these prescribed burns. And when they don't get the permit, um, it's just a ticking time bomb. If it's going to burn on itself or we're going to do it in a controlled way that will not, you know, black out the whole forest. Well, what's, you know, really heartbreaking, I think for me is we have some examples of, you know, huge amount of lives lost. I had Beth Bowersocks on the show, who was a dispatcher at the Paradise Fire, and she was a Paradise resident herself. So she oh, lost yeah. friends and family, and she's stuck in the dispatch center getting these calls from these people when they're getting burned up. So we have these, you know, 9-11 type um, uh, calls that have existed in America, and yet there still seems to be an opposition to some of these things that the entire wildland community seems to be aligned with that will help. Right, right. Um, yeah, no, it's devastating. It's devastating what wildfires can do. And it's amazing to think um, wildfires are a natural disaster. Um, you know, it's 50-50 lightning or some idiot starts a fire. Um, but gosh, it's really the only natural disaster we go head on and try to fight and tame. Um, you don't you don't put up giant walls and try to stop a hurricane from hitting Florida. Um you know, preemptives or whatever, but, um, yeah, there's, I think there should be a lot more prescribed fire on the ground. They should open up extra hours to make that a uh, possibility because it's so productive when it happens, especially when we, we cut fuel breaks, when we burn, um, prescribed fire on the side, it's just, we can make mountains look like a park where if it burns, it's not, there's not going to be enough fuel on the ground to burn. And then you burn the piles in the winter and everywhere I've seen that done has been a huge success. Well, I appreciate your insight. Like I said, I'm, I'm, you know, city and county my whole career. So this is uh, slightly alien to me, but with Anaheim, I get somewhat of a perspective, including an afternoon. Well, I think it was a whole day, actually, but progressive hose lines and cutting line. And I was like, fuck this for a game of soldiers. <laughs> you are <laughs> can keep this. This is hard. <laughs> right, right. Now, um, I've done some prescribed fire. It's a lot of fun. And it's, um, it's, it's, it's just, if you can think about it, um, for some of the people that might have no idea, um, like for example, we could go behind a neighborhood, maybe a small community out, out in the middle of the woods, there's 50 homes. And let's say our goal is to burn the mountains behind them. And we're only, we're going to do a low, low impact burn. So we're just trying to burn the ground fuel. We're, we're going to not try to burn any of the trees. You know, a few of them are going to go here and there, but we're going to do it nice and slow, bring the fire up the mountain or down the mountain, depending on the winds. And we're just going to burn that base layer. So when a fire does come through, we took out a majority of the ground fuel. So the fire is going to be a low impact fire if you, you know, and it's not going to affect these homes. They're going to be safe because we burned this mountain through a prescribed fire. Now, if you don't do that, then it comes uh, putting fire like a burn operation on a wildfire um, is typically a last resort. And then, you know, a year or two later, because that permit didn't get approved or whatever happened, now we're in these people's backyard and the fire's coming down the mountain, burning everything in its path. And now our attempt is to burn everything between the houses and that fire. 
So now we're going to just destroy the woods because that's the point we're at. There's no other option. So prescribed fire will help to keep the woods more natural and alive versus, you know, it's going to take 50 or 60 years for this land to grow back because it's going to nuke out. We call it nuked out when everything burns and it's just black and everything's gone. So is the opposition then, I heard this when I worked for my last department that protected Disney World, um, they would have all these fireworks and they'd end up in, you know, the the um, the forests on the outside of these resorts and it was all swamp as well. So they'd have these muck fires that were underground and really dangerous and had these guys just putting water on for days and days and days. And I asked one of my wildland friends here and he's like, well, what you should be doing is checkering the forest. So the dozers make this checker shape that creates all these fire breaks. And then you literally have to just fight where that firework actually landed. But the opposition to that was Disney didn't want any smoke. And what I've heard, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that the opposition to the prescribed burns is the residents don't want it to be smoky. Well, you take a step back. It's like, well, do you want a little smoke once in a while or do you want your town completely obliterated? Because those are your two choices. Right. No, it's absurd when you think about it. Because, yeah, that's what a lot of people say is we don't want smoke in our town. Well, do you want the whole town to fucking burn down in, you know, next year or five years from now? I'd rather it be, you know, if I lived there, I'd rather it be protected, you know, and it, it takes time to do those and, and to get everything in play. And, and yeah, I mean, a lack of resources is huge because when you look at, um, you know, the millions and millions of acres of public land, we don't have enough firefighters to go and prep, you know, all that land. We don't have the resources to do that, and especially with temporary employees. You don't have the, the strength you do in, in July and the heat of summer. You have a lot of a lot of force and a lot of strength. But, you know, when you're trying to prescribe fire in March or April or uh you know, November, December, you know, whenever you're doing that based on the region, um, you don't have the same resources you have in the heat of summer and you can't do prescribed fire in the heat of summer. And then everyone's gone on a wildfire anyway. So you got no, hardly anyone is sitting around during, you know, July and August wildfire wise. Well, just before we progress, talk to me about, speaking of, of prescribed burns, so you had to do a back burn on an active fire and you had a pretty significant near miss. So just talk to me about that incident. Oh, yeah. That was on, uh, I forget, Sugarloaf. It was a big fire in Nevada um, that started off as a grass fire. It got into some timber. Um, that was a huge wildfire. And uh, we got, it was like our first day there. Uh, we pulled up in our buggies and um, our, our soup and, and the assistants and the squad bosses um, got in uh, UTVs and we're going way out to sort of scout the line and, and safety zones and, and what our operation was going to be. So there's always some scouting, you know, you don't always jump out of the buggies and, and go digging right away. Um, sometimes we do. Uh, there's always someone scouting. And we're standing there um, by the buggies, you know, hurry up and wait kind of deal. And we see the, you can see these mountains and you see the smoke just pouring over the crest of these, the ridgeline on the top of these mountains. And we're just all sitting there like, we got to burn right fucking now, or we're not going to catch it. And, uh, you know, we got the torches ready, but, you know, we, we, get, we can't make that decision. And um, finally, the crew boss has come back. And they're like, we got to burn right now. And we're like, we knew that a fucking hour ago. Uh, and so my squad boss grabs me and uh, one other crew member. 
and we got drip torches and uh, we're going down this um, old dusty two track road. Um, we got the fire to the left of us and to the right of us is the green. So the greens, everything that hasn't burned and the fire starts coming over the mountain and we're uh, literally running on the left side of the road, trying to take out the fuels between us and the fire. Um, so when the fire does hit where we've burned, it's got a less chance of jumping the road because we took out, you know, the first 50 feet, you know, typically you want to take out a lot of land. Um, but in that quick situation, we're just going for, you know, 30, 40 feet. Um, and the winds were against us. And so we're laying down our fire. Uh, my boss told the whole crew to stay back. Um, just the three of us were going in there and we're doing our fire. Um, we started off slow burning off the road and, uh, I'm like 30 feet into the grass, um, lighting off. So I'm lighting and then my buddy's right behind me about 30 or 40 feet. And that fire comes over that hill, just roaring and it's loud and it's fast. And it was 30 mile an hour winds. Um, we're really pushing that fire down the mountain. Um, and it got to a point where it was so smoky, you could hardly see. And, um, then we ran into the main fire, the main fire hit the road in front of us. And then our fire, we just burned off the road, our fires, peeling over the road behind us so we're in a shitty situation and you can hardly see i mean maybe maybe 15 feet at this point and i remember my squad boss just yelling run and we started running towards the the main fire over over this cattle grate and gosh he everyone kept their cool but you're uh, you're like we're gonna fucking we're in trouble and uh he just hollers fucking run that way turn around fucking run run and, you know, we got all our heavy gear on and it's hot as anything. And then the smoke really closed in because we're on this dusty two track. The fire curls over the road. So we have fire on both sides of the road. Um, and the smoke is so heavy. I mean, you can't breathe and your eyes are watery. It's really hard to, to focus on what you're trying to do. But you go into survival mode and you just run for your life. And we ran through this, this thick, hot, very hot smoke. Um, and got out of there just in the nick of time. And then everyone's on their hands and knees and throwing up and catching their breath. And it was an intense, intense situation where, um, you know, just moments later, um, you know, there's no telling, but, you know, we could have been, you know, in a serious life or death situation. Now, did you ever have to deploy a shelter during your career? I did not. No, I've never had to deploy a shelter. Um, no, I've been in some, we've been in some sticky situations. And, and one of the things that I love being on a hotshot crew is, is, you know, your superintendent, uh, the people higher up, your assistant superintendents, your squad bosses, they've been in fire for so many years. Um, and they, they've been in so many different types of fires, you know, grass, timber, whatever it may be. And you just really trust the decision-making process. Um, on a shock crew, they're so dialed, they're so professional, they know what the fuck they're doing. And, um, you know, we, we have everything is put into place. Our, our lookouts are put into place, our communications, our escape routes, our safety zones. Um, and, you know, our superintendent might be, you know, a mile or two watching the main fire when we're way down a mountain. So he knows what's going on. Then the assistant might be on another mountain checking another angle. And then someone's checking weather. To, you know, you got to really focus on weather shifts, um, especially with wind shifts. Um, so I always felt pr pretty comfortable. Um, there were some moments where, 
you were like, damn, we should get out of there. And uh, sure enough, it come on the radio and we, you know, go on a crazy hike through the black um, things that have already burned to get to a, a safer spot. Um, so, yeah. So they have trigger points when the fire hits here, we got to get the fuck out of here. And we always did. And um, but, yeah, you, you see some some pretty intense shit being on a shot crew. And, you, you know, you're relying on o- overhead to make the right decisions because we're going to dig line until someone tells us not to. So you have these seasons, as you said, you're, you know, fighting fire intensively through the summer, you're, you know, working and, and training through the winter. Talk to me about that transition. Why was that last season, the last season, and then walk me through that experience? Because one thing, again, a true, you know, reality, a truth that's come out of these conversations is whether it's through injury, whether it's through being fired, whether it's through retirement, a lot of us struggle when we transition from that profession out. You had tribe, you had purpose, you had, you know, a profession that you were proud to be in. You had the shared suffering with the men and women that you serve alongside. And then one day it's all gone. So what made you, if anything, or if it was out of your control, why was that the last season and what was that transition like for you? Um, yeah, my last season was in Yosemite National Park, which was a, oh, that was one of my favorite seasons in, Every season of fire is probably my favorite, but I had a unique uh, experience in in Yosemite because of COVID. That's when COVID um, was big in, in uh, 2020, and they shut down the national park for a couple months to the public. So it was a, a weird blessing uh, living in the national park and being, being able to hike some of the most magical trails in the world. Um, and it was so cool to work in Yosemite and help protect Yosemite National Park um i've loved yosemite for a long time so it was an honor to to work there um after the fire season i got uh laid off in november um and yeah it's just a quick halt you go from zero to 100 and you're just laid off um your purpose is gone um i hate to say your purpose is gone like your your purpose with fighting fire your your constant direction uh your goals you know for the day to work on this fire to make these objectives, um, you know, accomplish those. And and then you're sort of just like, you're free. Like, what the fuck do I do? And um, I don't know what overtook me, but my, um, it was like my first or second day um, released. And I was driving out to Big Sur from Yosemite, which is just a, a few hours away. One of my favorite places to go. And uh, I started to have a, I didn't know what it was in the moment, but I started to have a panic attack. Um, on my drive. And I just like was having trouble breathing and my heart's beating out of my chest and I like can't focus my eyes and I'm like shaking and I'm like, what the fuck? I mean, you feel like you're about to die. And I was like, what is going on? And I pulled over and I just like, I didn't know what to do. So I got like, you know, like I got some beer and drank a few beers to just, I wanted to calm down. Um, and that was the only thing I could think of. Um, cause I never went through this. I didn't know what to do. Um, and yeah, that night I didn't end up getting out of my truck for hours. Um, I just sat looking at the ocean from my truck, which is um, not normal for me. I I get there, I get out of my truck, run on the beach and um, having fun and so happy to be there. And everything was reversed. I was like, I really thought I was going to die. And I just sat in my truck for hours and didn't really even care about the beautiful landscape around me and the waves crashing and uh, just drank beers and I actually wrote... Um, 
it might be a little far-fetched, but like, I really thought I was going to die. So I started writing letters to my little brother and like, um, I thought that was it. And, uh, that was my first severe panic attack. Um, and then I started having severe panic attacks every day, um, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and they would last for a long time. And, um, I felt so weak for having them. I felt, um, ashamed and embarrassed, um, like just being a hotshot firefighter, um, very humble about that. But, you know, you feel very strong with what you do and you're very proud of who you are. Um, and there's a sort of a stigma with men that we can't show weakness. We can't um, complain, especially in these types of jobs. Um, you know, I through my uh, last four years being a firefighter, I cannot remember anyone talking about mental health um, or saying like, you know, if you go through something, you can come talk to us. I don't recall, recall, you know, sitting down in an office room and, and having those discussions. Um, so you're trained to just do your fucking job. And uh, a lot of it shut up and dig. And um, it's a very serious job. And I think mental health is really important because it, it would be dangerous for someone to be out on the line and having severe mental issues and not be focused on the task at hand that brings danger to the, the whole crew. And, um, anyways, when I was starting to have these severe panic attacks, I was coping with them, um, by drinking, I would have a panic attack and I drink three or four beers and I would calm down. Um, and I was self-medicating and I didn't want to drink three or four beers in the morning. I wanted to drink coffee and go for a run. And uh, sometimes, you know, I'd make it through the day and I was like, all right, maybe it's not that bad. And it would hit me at like 10 o'clock at night. And uh, I didn't tell anyone. Um, I silently suffered and I was ashamed of what was happening. Um, and I didn't know what to do. Um, and then it got really bad where like I couldn't even go for a run. My whole world started feeling like it was closing in and the panic attacks were very debilitating. Um I stopped riding my bike. I remember I tried to go for a run one time and made it like a tenth of a mile and the panic just overtook me and my heart's beating out of my chest and I, I felt like trapped and like I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And all the things that I loved doing, I I stopped doing. I felt like I couldn't do them. I felt so trapped and so crippled by uh, these panic attacks and I didn't talk about it. I didn't tell anybody. Um, and after drinking for a long time to cope with those. Um, it sort of, I, I was upset with how I was dealing with it. However, I didn't know how to deal with it. And I was frustrated with what was going on to me on with me. And I didn't know why it was going on with me. Um, and I felt so weak and embarrassed and ashamed. Um, and that sent me into a, a depression. Um, and the depression really fucked me up and I never talked about it. So I'm like, in my own hell every single day in my mind i'm in this this hell where i think i'm gonna die every day um i feel like shit um I, i'm losing all my confidence and self-esteem and it's all in my head and i'm not telling anyone about it um and yeah i just suffered in this dark shithole for about a year um and it got worse and worse and worse um i finally did go to a doctor um, cause I was sick of feeling that way. And, uh, I drank a few beers before I went to the doctor cause it was my first time talking about it and I didn't feel comfortable talking about it. Um, 
I, I felt like a pussy um, in, in that moment at that time. I felt so weak. Um, so I had a few beers, went to the doctor, told him how I was feeling. They told me that I was an alcoholic, gave me some AA pamphlets and sent me on my way. Um, so that didn't work, which made me not want to talk about it at all because I was not an alcoholic. I was drinking to calm down because that was the only tool I had. And it was the only thing that helped. And uh, yeah, for that year, the only safe place that I had, James, was sleep. I love sleeping because it was the only time I was away from this mental hell. Um, every hour I was awake, um, if I wasn't having a panic attack or feeling really depressed, I, I would think about it. And it was just a matter of when's it going to happen today? Is it going to happen in an hour? Is it going to, when's it going to happen? I know it's going to happen. Um, and that, that was definitely part of my issue was I was anticipating it happening. I was like breathing so much life into this as well. Um, and then finally I thought I got some help, um, with the next doctor I went to, but, uh, they ended up just throwing pills at me, um, which made things extremely worse. Uh, none of the medicine worked for me. Um, I don't want to disencourage people from going down that route, but I do recommend you stay very cautious down that route. Um, you know yourself better than anyone else. Um, and some, you know, some pills work magic for some and for others are totally opposite. Um, so none of the medicine worked for me. And, uh, after a year of, uh, living in this hell, uh, I almost killed myself, uh, twice in one week. I just wanted to end this suffering that was going on in my head. Um, and that was the darkest place I ever got to in my life. Well, firstly, thank you for sharing the story. And it's, it aligns with what we talked about early with the ranch experience that you have with the rangers and, you know, the, the drug addict that gets thrown into prison. I've heard so many horror stories of people going to the wrong counselor and the EAP is usually the Russian roulette. Um, and, you know, the right person can change a life, absolutely change a life, but the wrong person can contribute to someone taking their own life. I think what was powerful, and please correct me if I'm wrong, when I read um, this part of the book, you touched on the fact that you were going to drive into you know, a bridge or whatever it ends up being. And you said, if I'd had a gun, I wouldn't be writing this book right now. I think that's an important thing. I mean, the moment there's any sort of violence with a weapon, the, the, the two sides, you know, separate like the Red Sea and then they hurl rocks at each other. I think a lesser known fact is that there are more people that kill themselves with a gun in the US than kill other people with a gun. Now, I'm not saying we need to get rid of all guns. I have a gun in my safe right now. However, it is part of the entire conversation. If you are starting to struggle, alcohol and a firearm seem to be the perfect storm for being able to take your own life. And unlike Kevin Hines, who had on the show, who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge, that had that fall to go, what the fuck did I just do? And then ultimately survive the squeeze of a trigger. You don't even get that. You don't even get time to regret it. So I just wanted to kind of highlight that. I'd love for you to elaborate because the firearm isn't, you know, is someone could argue a necessity in America in 2022 with all the, the crime and violence that we have, but it can also be a very, very easy way of making the wrong decision at that moment, especially under the influence. Right. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I actually read a, a cool story years and years ago. Uh, I don't want to say a cool story, an interesting uh, perspective from that where um, a man was depressed. I don't remember all the details. 
um, but he wanted to end his life. And he shot himself um, and he survived. And it's sort of like what you're saying. When you shoot yourself in the head, you die instantly. There's no time to really process. Do I want to, is this really what I want to do? Um, and then he survived, you know, he's in a coma or whatever and gets out of the hospital and he, he never thought of that ever again. Well, at least up to that point that wherever he was telling the story um, and he regretted it. And that's the problem. You have a gun, you, you pull that trigger. You, you can't regret it because you, you're dead. Um, but yeah, I was ready to end my life um, in any means capable. And I would have pulled a trigger um, in that moment. I definitely would have. Um, it would have been easy. It would have been quick. Um, it's also the most selfish fucking thing you can do. Um, you're destroying people, um, friends, family um, will be devastated and that will be with them for the rest of their life. Um, it's such a selfish, selfish decision to run away like that. Um, what happened to me? Um, oh, it was just a rough week. I'd sit in the dark and fucking drink and I didn't want to be alive. And I kept thinking about it. And, uh, yeah, I just worked up the, the best way to kill myself was to get in my truck and, uh, and drive really fast into a, a concrete barrier into a wall without my seatbelt on. Um, that was the, I couldn't cut myself. Um, and so that was what I was fixing to do. And, uh, I have a dog, beautiful dog named Rocky. And so, and I didn't write a note or anything like that, but I just, one night I was like, this is it. I, I don't want to be alive anymore. My head was so fucked and I was living in this hell for so long. I couldn't handle it anymore. And I just wanted it to be over. And, uh, I just poured a ton of, you know, dog food on the ground and filled up a bunch of stuff with water and I uh, gave him a kiss goodbye. And the weirdest thing happened when I was going to walk out the door, I, uh, you know, car keys in hand and I, I'm turning the knob on my, on my door to walk outside. And, uh, it was like an angel came down from heaven and I almost feel my dad's, um, hand on my shoulder. And I just close my eyes and I hear my dad in my head. He says, you never give up, son. You never give up. It was like this angel came down and, uh, I closed the door and I, uh, I didn't kill myself because of, because of what happened in that moment. And uh, yeah, it was a miracle. It was a true miracle. Well, I'd love to get your perspective on something. You talked about suicide being selfish. And I think to a healthy brain from the outside looking in, it does appear so. That being said, with all these conversations, I've had another person I had on Emma Benoit, was a high school student in Louisiana who shot herself and survived. So now she's an amazing mental health advocate. But again, another another thing about regret. But so many of these people I had on that came close and were stopped by a phone call, you know, a friend that, that interacted right before was at that moment. And now you think about the compounding elements of, you know, childhood trauma and sleep deprivation and, you know, TBI and all these things that, that kind of create this perfect storm is at that moment, their brain is so miswired. It's so broken that they felt that by taking their own life, it would benefit their family. So it wasn't a selfish act. It was a selfless act. And someone recently pointed out as well, not only do you have that miswiring, we also come from a profession where we've already taken an oath to put other people's lives ahead of our own. 
So now you've kind of amplified that, you know, sense of service. All right, I'm a burden to my family. I'm, you know, an absolute shit show that I scare my children. My wife hates me now. I'm just going to take myself out of the equation. So the irony is it's really in their mind. It's not selfish. It's selfless. But what people, I think, struggle to understand is that brain is so broken by that point. What makes sense to that person is completely the opposite of what makes sense to the healthy brain looking at so did you have any feelings of burdensome or, or, you know, anything that I've just described or was it purely simply just wanting the pain to end? Um, it was simply just wanting the pain to end. Yeah. That, and it kind of like scares me to think about it. Um, well, it doesn't scare me. It, it's scary to think where I, the place that I was in, um, a little over a year ago, um, just such a scary place. No, I wasn't, I didn't think about writing a, a suicide note. I didn't think about, I really didn't think about anything. I just wanted to not feel this way anymore. Um, and that was the only way that I thought I could escape that was to kill myself. Um, I just think it's selfish. Um, and that's my opinion. Um, as much as I wanted to escape those feelings, I can't imagine the pain that my younger brother, my mother and father would go through for the rest of their lives. And, you know, their feelings of what could I have done would drive them crazy. Why didn't he call, you know, what could we have done to help this um, situation? And the other side of that, um, that I think is very important and that we need to to be better on in, in the world is making it a safer place to talk about mental health. So when people are going through these things, um, they can call their, their friends, um, whoever it may be, or talk to their fire chief or whoever it is, whatever situation they're in, their teachers, um, their parents, their role models, their priests, whoever it is, that there's a safe place for them to say, like, I don't want to be alive right now. And, that doesn't mean they have to be in a mental institution for the next, you know, two months, you know, people need to feel comfortable um, opening that space and not being judged and not being looked at like they're weak or there's something wrong with them. We're all going to go through pain in life. Pain is guaranteed. Um, and it's very important that we open up a conversation where people don't have to hide it because the longer that we silently suffer um, for my my example, my life, it was a year. And after a year of suffering, I want to kill myself. Um, and no one would have known why I didn't tell anyone. Um, and I, I just, I hope that, that people can open up in life and find comfortable areas to talk about their mental health. Like it's okay to not be okay and understand that they're not alone. Like you're not the first person that's thought about killing themselves. Like people, people have gone through this and there's ways to overcome it. And it's, it's just a human feeling. Your feelings that happen to you are normal. They might not always be justified and, and make sense. Um, it didn't make sense to me coming from a very happy life to all of a sudden having panic attacks and being depressed and then want to kill myself. I couldn't pinpoint why that happened or why this is fair. You don't even think about why it's fair or not. It just is what it is, but it's okay. This is how I feel. And we need to, people need to understand it's okay to not be okay, but let's try to figure out how to get you back to being okay. Um, 
and yeah, I felt so weak. I wasn't going to tell my fire homies that, um, that I want to kill myself. That was the last phone call I was going to make. Um, and yeah, then I did build up some strength. Um, after that epiphany moment, um, hearing my dad, you never give up son. You never give up. Um, I knew I wanted to snap out of this. I knew I didn't want to kill myself and I had to, I had to do something, um, dramatic. I had to do something, um, big to snap out of this. Like I wasn't going to go to therapy once a week and work nine to five and all of a sudden I'd be better. I had to do, at least for my mind state, I had to do something. I had to get out of this environment and I had to go do something new. Um, and I made a decision that I was going to ride my bicycle across the entire country. And I was just going to figure it out and fight my demons and pedal to peace. And, um, when I came up with that idea, I called Burke Miner, um, who runs the wildland firefighter foundation up in Boise, Idaho. Um, I talked to him and he was the first person I really told all these feelings to. Um, and he was very supportive. And I said, uh, this is what I'm going through. I'm going to go ride my bike across the country and uh, I'm going to raise some money for the foundation. And, and he was super supportive and uh, listened to me and talked to me. And um, I had a bunch of support from them. And uh, next thing you knew it, I was like, fuck this. I'm leaving this behind me. I got my dog and uh, I got my bike, took the train from Salt Lake city and out to San Francisco and uh, started riding my bike from San Francisco, California to St. Augustine, Florida. Well, you ended up literally not even two hours north of me, um, just south of St. Augustine. Beautiful place. One of my favorite beaches on the planet. Um, really? Yeah. And you talked about your dog, Rocky. So as you progress through this journey, which obviously the book you know, details beautifully, um, you start to see the brotherhood, that, brother and sisterhood that is the fire service kind of unwrap as you progress you know, from west to east. So kind of, if you wouldn't mind elaborate, what was some of the, again, the highs of this incredible journey that I took five days in a car to do twice? <laughs> so I can't imagine walking it or running it or uh, on a bike, excuse me. Um, but yeah, so what were some of the highs and what were some of the lows of this kind of crucible that you're giving yourself? Right, right. Yeah, it was... Um... So going into the bike ride, I mean, I went in like right after I was in the darkest place of my life and having panic attacks every day and, uh, and depressed. And when I started riding my bike, it was almost like, well, I had a purpose now. I had a reborn purpose. Um, so when I started riding my bike, I had three goals. Um, my first goal was to find some clarity in my own mind, to, to find peace and uh, to fight my demons and overcome them. And yeah, truly to find peace within my myself and, and become stable again. Um, and my next goal was to raise uh, money for the Wildland Firefighter Foundation. And then my third goal was to raise awareness about mental health, especially within, um, you know, wildland firefighters. Um, and when I set off on my journey, um, gosh, I started to feel better. Like the first day I started to feel better um, and I got help throughout the whole country from wildland firefighters. Um, it started in, in California. I got a phone call, um, from a guy that was, uh, working for the, uh, national, uh, foundation firefighters association. I'm messing that up. Something like that. And, uh, he used to be a, a firefighter. Now he does more of the legislative side. Um, but his son's a hot shot. Um, and he got my phone number through the, the wildland firefighter foundation. He called me and he said, I'm going to call some, some different people I know in fire. 
uh, across Arizona and we'll try to uh, get you as much help as you can. And so I got help from him. And then next thing you know, I'm getting help from um, an engine crew in Arizona and they're helping me out with a shock crew down the road. And then they're helping me out and all these people um, throughout the whole country, uh, firefighters were coming out of the woodwork to uh, support me through um, like supporting me with watching my dog for a few days to shave off those hundred pounds. And then um, people were buying me hotels and meals and um, just kind emails and messages. Um, It was magical to see firefighters from California through Arizona, New Mexico, all across Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and all throughout Florida Um, firefighters. That brotherhood is so fucking strong. Um, And it was just a beautiful way to see it when I was going through my mental struggles and I was trying to fight my demons. um, Everyone was there for me. Um, And it took me being vulnerable and being real and just being like, I'm fucked up. I'm going to go try to figure this out. Um, And I'm living, you know, with everything on my, my shoulder, I'm open heart and uh, everyone knew what I was going through. And um, it didn't, they didn't respond. Like in my mind, I thought everyone's going to be like, you're a pussy. You know what I mean? Like get over it. And it was the opposite. Everyone was supportive. Everyone came together and, and uh, helped me out and helped me reach my goals um, and assisted, uh, supported me along my bike ride. Um, and so many people played a part in bringing me back to life on, on that ride. Um, as for highs, um, it, there was something so special when I was on like a 50 or 60 mile stretch of highway with no services. And, you know, it's just me and the dog or sometimes just me riding my bike and, you know, everything goes through your mind. You're forced to think about all these feelings. Um, and I was sort of like shedding layers. But when something came and, you know, tried to knock me down and I'm in the middle of nowhere on my bike, there was no escape. I couldn't go get drunk. I couldn't go to the bar. I couldn't call a friend. Like it was just me and my emotions and how I dealt with them. And um, I pedaled through them and I fought through them. And uh, over time, I, I became stronger and I shed so many of those layers of depression and my panic and I built up new layers of confidence and strength and, uh, you know, better tools um, mentally. And uh, I really felt a breakthrough about 17, 1800 miles in to my bike ride. I like, I broke through something. It was one of the most beautiful days on my ride. I was coming into Alpine, Texas, and there's these beautiful mountains and there was this incredible sunset. And I got to the top of this big hill it was like a 103 mile day and I was hundred miles in last three miles going downhill into town and I'm watching the sunset. And I just remember like tears coming off my face and I'm just in awe of the beauty around me. And in that moment, I felt like I just shed all my demons. I like overcame, I fucking crushed them. And, uh, I felt reborn and I rode into town with a big smile on my face. And, uh, you know, I still had 2000 miles to go, but for the rest of the trip, I was super happy. Um, and then my dad came out for 10 days, um, and rode as a support vehicle with me and, uh, carried Rocky across the state of Texas. And that was a great bonding experience for us and having my, uh, my superhero with there, uh, with me there, um, was so important in my healing too. Um, very special to share that with him. Um, but that bike trip, um, it, it was challenging. Um, but it saved my life, putting myself, 
you know, the, the first step is, is, you know, um, like accepting so I'm fucked up. I had to be like, I'm fucked up and I got to get the fuck out of here. Um, and then you got to tell that to someone else. And then I, I did that. I told that to someone else. I called the wildland firefighter foundation. I was like, I'm fucked up. I'm going to go do something about it. I got off the couch and I'm going to go ride my bike across the country. Um, and then I was vocal about it. Um, and that started my healing process and my forgiveness process. Like I had to forgive myself for what I went through and I had to understand I might not, I might not understand why I went through it. Um, but I did. Um, and that, that I can heal from this. I can become better, um, because I was better for 34 years before this. Um, and I had to, you know, heal and, and understand respect and, and forgive what I, what I went through and, and deal with it. Um, and then, you know, a big part of me thinks that, uh, believes that I went through this so I could better understand it. Um, like even when I worked as a wilderness therapy instructor, um, I did look at, um, young adults and teenagers when they had depression issues or panic, anxiety issues, um, on some of those issues, I, I did think it was a weakness, um, at that point. I did not understand it. And in order to be empathetic with someone to truly be there with them, if you don't understand something, it's, it's impossible, you know? Um, and part of me believes that I went through my panic disorder and my deep depression and, and almost taking my life so I could understand it better. And so now I can help others through that and I can be more empathetic and more compassionate. Um, I can I can help others, um, which a big part of helping people through, you know, those, that rough, those rough patches in life, um, is listening, just listening. Cause you know, no one's going to really talk me off this fucking bridge, but you know, just me talking about it for a couple hours, I might just talk myself off the bridge, you know, and thanks for sitting down and listening to this shit. Um, it's nice just to listen um, is, is the key for someone going through a tough time. That's really what they want. And uh, it's hard for people to get there. You know, I wasn't going to talk. I didn't want to talk to anybody. And, you know, I, I wish I would have. Um, but that's how it goes. They want someone to listen. Um, that's how you can help the most. Um, and then support them, support them. And not everyone's going to wake up one day out of a depression and, suicidal thoughts and start running, you know, marathons the next month. Um, so, you know, it's the little steps that make the big steps and you got to start somewhere. Absolutely. Well, as we mentioned, the book details, you know, the entire journey that you went on before you set off, you had this perception that everyone else was fine. Everyone else was tough and you were alone and you were being a pussy. What I've seen from so many of the guests is once they got to the point where they could start telling their story, people came out of the woodwork and they were like, well, fuck me. Everyone's going through some shit. I thought everyone was fine. And we as first responders are great at putting that mask up. If I show up to a structure fire and I'm like, oh my God, it's so hot. You know, it's not going to work. We got to have this this mask. If I could pull up on a horrendous tra traffic accident, it's the same. <laughs> but before right. and after is when I need to be vulnerable. Did you have any kind of aha moments, whether it was the journey itself or after the journey or maybe even after the book came out, where you realize, wow, there's there's so many more people hurting than, than I thought? Yes. Oh, I had so many of those moments. Um, so many to the point that I was like, 
is I think everyone's fucked. I agree. I the, whole, the whole world's fucking depressed. Um, on when I started on my bike ride, um, you know, I'd post videos on social media, um, you know, talking about what I went through and, and talking about my bike ride and stuff. And I was blown away by the messages that I would receive from complete strangers, from um, you know, people, uh, war vets, from other firefighters, smoke jumpers, hot shots, fucking Navy SEALs. Um, saying that they're going, they were or have going through the same thing and they haven't told anyone and just thanking me for talking about it out loud on a public platform. And, uh, so many touching messages, um, from people that were like, you know what, I'm going to go talk to my wife today and I'm going to stop drinking, you know, whatever it was. Um, I've been bombarded by tons of those messages and I try to respond to, um, all of them as much as I can. Um, and then I realized, you know, like you're a product of your environment. Um, but also like what you put out opens up so much, like the energy you put out opens out, like the energy that's going to come back in. And when I was writing my book after, uh, my bike ride, I started writing my book and, uh, I was blown away. I'd go take my dog Rocky to the dog park and, people would ask, you know, what are you doing? And I tell them about my book and my bike trip and stuff like that. And, uh, gosh, it was like everyone I met was depressed or had like panic attacks. It, it was wild because I opened up that door because I was vulnerable. Like they were, they accepted it was okay for them to be vulnerable. Um, so I noticed, uh, a lot of people are going through a lot of things and they all wear, a mask. I think a lot of people are suffering silently um, because that door, that conversation isn't open. That's not like a sit around the Thanksgiving table and talk about how fucked up your life is, you know? Um, and especially social media is a, a lot of bullshit on there anyways. Um, you don't really see who people really are. Um, and I try to be real and authentic through my book, through uh, my social media um, and let people know it's, you're not alone. You're not the only person that's ever gone through depression or felt suicidal thoughts. Like I'm here for you. And I, I understand, you know, our past of course will be different, um, with how you went through your journey and how I went through my journey, but they're relatable. And, uh, I think it's like everybody has their pain and, and we all disguise it in different ways. And, uh, we just got to, uh, be better as a culture to respect people, strangers, because you don't know the hell that they're going through in their mind, you know? A hundred percent. I think there's, there's two groups. There's people that are hurting, which I think is a lot, especially, I think it's the Western world. I think if you did an actual study on some of the less developed countries outside of, you know, poverty and that kind of thing, you'd probably find a you know, higher level of happiness, to be honest, because we create so much undue stress in our own lives. But there's another group that are doing okay, whether they've processed something they went through or maybe they just had an amazing upbringing and haven't kind of had that first hurdle yet. And I tell those people because I would consider, I mean, I've been through a lot, but I never found myself at the darkest place. And I look back at my childhood and there was absolutely trauma there, but there was accidentally a lot of very positive coping mechanisms woven in. I was from a large family. We always ate around a table together like the firehouse. It was a farm. Um, so, you know, nature and all those kind of things. So if you are not going through something right now, it is up to you to create that environment for people to reach out. And that means you being vulnerable. You may not be suffering, but you can be like, 
I used to be this. I used to, I went through that. You know, I went through a fucking awful divorce. You know, I told you my, my son's thing with the, the school was one of my lowest points ever. Um, so I actually went home just over a year ago to Europe and hit, I was blindsided by depression for a few weeks. And I, I, from what I, I still to this day don't know why it hit me so hard then, but it did. And like you said, you don't have to explain it. You just have to accept it. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. starting the conversation with some of these things and being vulnerable and not buying into this fucking bullshit, you know, rub some dirt in it, John Wayne, fucking wanky in a 1980s masculinity, <laughs> but actually being a real man. If you want to see a real man, watch the Band of Brothers and listen to the real soldiers talking at the beginning of the end while they're in tears. That's a real man. Then if we can bring that into the fray, I think we're going to save so many lives. So many. I, I totally agree. Well, like, yeah. And it takes understanding like to be tough is to be fragile. Like it's tough to talk about your feelings. Um, and that's why it takes being fragile to make you tough. Um, anyone could sit around and, and do some badass shit. But are you going to tell us how you really feel? And it's important. to op- Yeah. Just opening up that conversation um, is huge. And I feel like, especially in the fire community, the fire community need, needs to do a lot better. Um, there was not a, I didn't um, have anything really going on when I was on Snake River Hot Shots, but I would not have felt comfortable telling my boss how I was feeling mentally or emotionally. I would have never said anything. Yeah, actually, I've got the uh, chief of St. Augustine Fire Department coming on, and he's got a very powerful mental health story himself. So that's the thing. If you're in a leadership position, again, it's up to you to walk the walk. You know, if you're the one, you know, touting this, I'll sleep when I'm dead bullshit, then shame on you. You know, you should be being vulnerable and and creating these conversations in the firehouse, in the battalions, in, you know, your hotshot crews or your smoke jumper crews so that the people that look up to you go, oh, this is normal. Okay, well, let me tell you how I feel. Right, right. And a strong leader wants, you know, whoever he's leading, his crew, his guys, um, that leader wants his guys to be at a a top um their best potential, be the best selves. And to be your best self, we have to have everything on the table. Cause if I don't understand the guy I'm, you know, fighting fire with or fighting war with or whatever it is you're fighting together. If you don't know what he's going through, when something happens, you don't know what's going to happen. You know, I want to be on the same, I want to understand my, my boys, you know what I mean? And I also want them to know it's okay. You know, maybe you have to sit out this mission um, cause you have to focus on something else and that's okay. You know, we'll pick up the slack from here because um, we're all in this world together. We're all connected. We're all going through the same struggles and we're all trying to make it and, and we're all trying to live our, our lives as, as happily and, and beautifully as we can. And we need to support, encourage and motivate each other on so many different fronts to be better people, but also to um, to respect mental health um, on a higher category and stop looking at our fucking phones and look at each other and love one another i agree a hundred percent well your book that you wrote is called above the ashes so tell people where they can find the book as far as bookstores and also about your website great um yeah so my my book above the ashes um the inspiring true story of a firefighter's journey to rediscover joy and to free himself from his battle with mental illness Uh, my website is kevintheauthor.com is where you can find my book um and my book is focused on uh, my years being a wildland firefighter. And then it talks 
um, a couple chapters about the mental struggles that I went through, the mental hell I went through with my severe panic disorder and depression and how I almost took my life. Um, and then it talks about how I fought my demons, rode my bike across the country and how I rose above the ashes. Um, there's some great stories in there that I believe could give some true hope to people. Um, let them know that they're not alone. They can heal. You can become better. Um, I think there's some great advice and tips in there and it's a cool story. You see, uh, a full, you know, 180 from the darkest place you could be as a human, um, wanting to kill myself to being the happiest and, uh, meeting my goals and, you know, raising $20,000 for the wildland firefighter foundation and, and finding myself and, and resilience and, and overcoming my demons and, and being reborn and reteaching my brain. Uh, who I am and how I am and becoming a stronger human. And it's got a happy ending because I accomplished my mission. I rode 3,500 miles across the country and uh, I wrote a book about it that I think is very powerful and I think could help um, a lot of people, even if you're not having mental health issues. Um, it's a great, a great book. Um, and I think it's a great book for, especially for our community with uh, first responders. I think it could help a lot of first responders. Absolutely. No, I enjoyed it immensely. So thank you. Well, I just want to say again, thank you so much. I know, like I said, we talked uh, late last year. I had a, a crazy last few months from traveling to family and friends' deaths. I mean, all kinds of stuff. So it was a pretty, pretty shitty end to 2022. But I'm so glad that we sat down and did this today. Um, I commend you on the book. I commend you on your, your self-insight. I mean, it's not often that people are able to just make that decision. But when you look at the kind of steps prior and the Appalachian Trail and some of these other things, everyone's tools to heal are going to be different. And clearly that kind of being on your own, having to face your own thoughts and then being in nature were clearly some of the, the biggest tools in your toolbox. So I just want to thank you so much for being so generous and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Yeah, my honor. Oh, I had a great time. That was that was a good talk. And uh, I hope it helps a, a lot of people. Yeah, the book Above the Ashes, KevinTheAuthor.com. And uh, I look forward to shaking your hand one day. We'll have to go get a beer down in, down in Florida sometime. <laughs>